internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I didn't think of something to say in this moment. Oh. But <laughs> with me is... I'm, I'm Lindsay, and I've eaten too many cookies. <laughs> uh, I'm Sarah, and I just bought a new plant called Gobble Guts. Gobble Guts? I like it. <laughs> Gobblegut. Yeah, he's the other. Ew. <laughs> this is the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes. We all start on the same wiki page every week, and we use hyperlinks within the article to click around until we find something that we cannot stop reading. Typically, this means one, uh, two or more paragraphs. Sheesh. Um, Sheesh. This week, we started on the moon, and... <laughs> I, Physically. I actually have no idea where you guys normally we give each other like a little teaser. I have no idea where you guys are right now. I uh I took a wild ride and I ended up on Henrietta Lacks or Healer Cells, which I'm sure Drew knows all about. Oh my god. <laughs> also wait, Lindsay, you don't know about because we had to read the book on her for, for, for Colgate. Drew, I'm really sorry. I not only dodged that, but I have your copy that you gave me, and I've used it to collage so many different <laughs> works of art. <laughs> what, you just oh rip pages god. out of it and collage shit? Yes. Oh my god, that's amazing. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. It's beautiful. <laughs> oh lord. Holy okay. shit. No, that's good. That's that's good. I I ended up on antimicrobial resistance. Ooh, damn! Very. You guys went so scientific. <laughs> Ooh, did you not? <laughs> we we did. Yeah, what did you land on? Um, the history of pieing people in the face. <laughs> 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 I love that. I love it. Oh, that is amazing. I love it. I'm very excited to hear about that history. <laughs> Maybe should we do a little science science sandwich? I was thinking that or would it make sense? Yeah, you know what? Let's not let's not just overload everybody with like science science and then suddenly pie. <laughs> pie. Maybe a little science pie makes sense. We'll do okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we dive in to all of our amazing topics, uh, we have to start with question of the week. And this week's question was, what type of food did you only discover as an adult that you just can't get enough of now? I'm going to, Lindsay, what is your, what is your food, food item? Um, kind of embarrassingly, um, <laughs> I didn't know that garlic salt existed and <laughs> I love garlic in everything. So, oh um, yeah, now I use garlic salt instead of regular salt every time I use salt. I think that's the wow. only way to that's use a... salt is garlic salt. I never knew this. I, I learned this like within the last four years. Wow, you went so long without wow. it. What about what about you, Drew? Well, this is actually in the time I've been doing the show, I've discovered this. Cheese. Cheese is my new my new <gasps> favorite thing in the world. 
Right. Oh. I'm so proud of you. I used to absolutely detest cheese. And and now now I can't live without it. Like everything has to have cheese on it, and and I can eat like cheese just play it by itself. Yes, that's that's <laughs> the level of cheese love that I admire in people. Is the people who want to just grab a fistful of cheese and put it in their mouth. That's definitely me. Yeah, I I could never do that until this year. I think it was this year. I guess it was like this. I don't know. Time's weird. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> fucked with my brain. <laughs> I am so proud of you. That is that is a big step. Thank you, thank you. I I appreciate that. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? What's your what's your food? Um, so mine is coriander, but I think you call it oh. cilantro. Oh. <laughs> Do you hate it, Lindsay? You like cilantro? Okay, here is... I really hate it. So I hated it too. I hated it with a passion until we started getting um, these like meal prep delivery kits. Marley Spoon. I don't know if you have it in the Mm -hmm. state. Um, But yeah, so you get all of the ingredients in the recipe and you just cook it up. And a lot of it had... Um, coriander or cilantro in it and at first me and me and Simon were like ew gross but we're like no we should trust the recipe we'll put it in and it's delicious like when it's used in the right way in the recipes it's really really good and we both like it so maybe I feel like Mm -hmm. I was just using it wrong beforehand and I judged Mm -mm. it too quickly hmm Mm -mm. Lindsay's like no you're wrong I don't know about that one (laughs) (laughs) I have that. I have that gene that makes oh, you hate cilantro. Oh, you're a super taster. Yeah. Oh, makes it taste like my mom's. It's like genetic. That. It tastes it. like soap. Yes. I've said this. I've said this every time people ask me. I would rather eat soap than eat cilantro. Wow. <laughs> and yes, I've gotten soap in my mouth. I do know what I'm saying. I would rather eat soap than eat cilantro. It's disgusting. <laughs> wow, you must be a real super taster then. <laughs> Yeah, that's in my that's my Tinder profile. <laughs> I'm a real super taster. I'm a super, I'm a super taster. taster. <laughs> but we have a ton of audience submissions that actually are yes. none of what Woo-hoo. we have said. Really? Yeah, I could not bring myself to um, cut out anybody's submissions, so I'm gonna say them rapid fire, and you guys hold your applause till the end, just like Drew said. Okay. Hold it. I'm hold it in. It. Hold it. Um, we've got the blood of my enemies, Melinda's black truffle hot sauce, <laughs> sauerkraut, Polish garlic sauce, horseradish, habanero hot sauce, and raw jalapenos, garlic aioli, horseradish again, capers, and green ketchup. Wow. <laughs> Our audience wow. has a taste. A... I think... These are like I love that horseradish is like the epitome of like grown up gross food, like to the point where I'm like intrigued <laughs> to try it because multiple people said that they love it on everything, but I'm still in that frame of mind that's like horseradish is disgusting. Like grown ups eat that. That's gross. <laughs> it's gross. <laughs> Get it out. I can't picture what horseradish even looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I will agree um, with Fun Fact Science, also great username. Uh, capers are awesome to put in everything. That's something I've also started doing as an adult. Particularly, I make like a 
vegan tuna salad and I put capers in it and it is fantastic. Mm. What is a caper? It's, I don't know if it's from both Greece and Italy. I think it's probably just grown in the Mediterranean and it's basically a bud of a plant. Um, like it would flower, but you harvest them when they're buds and they have like a very sour sort of taste or acidic kind of it's funny like I think that this is the adult palate I think that all of these things have like a slightly acidic taste to them (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) how bizarre that we're all like yes we would like a little bit something that's a little bit gross yeah yeah I think that's like part of growing (laughs) up I'm like intrigued to try sauerkraut that was from Steve thanks Steve Oh, Steve. Steve. Steve loves sauerkraut, everyone. <laughs> he loves sauerkraut. Steve. Steve. <laughs> anyway, which science should go first? I'm happy to do to do healer cells because I feel like Henrietta Lacks deserves, deserves all the attention. Okay. Okay. Okay, so uh, I landed on healer cells and Drew... You've you read a book about this and you would know it just from like your general yes. awesomeness of being a biologist. Um, but Lindsay, do you know anything about healer cells? I know from the title of the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, that they, being scientists, use her cells all the time. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. So I will... I will you know, you're totally right. So her cells were um, basically like, long story short, um, they're a type of cancer cell that she had uh, growing in her body. And uh, they found out that they are these type of immortal cells where they reproduce and repopulate really easily on plates and in test tubes, basically. So you can just repopulate them um, and have this immortal cell line. So it means that scientifically, when you're doing research and testing things, you can do tests on the same cells so you're not introducing any other type of um, accidental biases or other other things that you might not foresee so they're incredibly important in science but I thought I would break it down um, and and give you a little bit about her life uh, because I feel like not not a lot of people know about her life um, so uh, as I said healer cells are particularly well known um, in scientific research um, but the, the history of exactly how they become so well-known and so well-used, I thought was really fascinating. And, you know, it's both fascinating, shocking, and I wrote an all-round just reflection of the type of world we live in. Okay, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. hold on to your butts uh, because <laughs> we're going to go We're gonna go on a, on a wild ride. Are you ready? Right. Yes. Yes. Okay, so... Before we really dive into what makes these cells special, we have to go back in time um, and follow the life of a young African-American woman called Henrietta Lacks. So she was born in the year 1920, and she was born in Roanoke, Virginia, which throwback <gasps> to our episode where I chatted about the lost colony of Roanoke. Wow. It's the same Roanoke, huh? <laughs> wow. Yeah, the same Roanoke. <laughs> uh, anyone who's interested, you can listen to episode seven. Uh, sorry, 17, episode 17. Oh my God, but pause. Do um, you think that there could be a very, like a veritable conspiracy theory that there's some kind of like energetic epicenter at Roanoke? Like, I feel like someone's invented this oh already. Oh my God. <laughs> 
I am sure that there's a forum on the internet with just that theory. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, do continue. (laughs) All right, so we're in Roanoke. Uh, Henrietta had a relatively normal life for the for the first few years of her life until age four um at age four her mother died suddenly unfortunately um giving birth to her 10th child um so after this as you can imagine life was really really hard um and her father could not manage all of the different children trying to provide for them um and and you know, it was just very, very difficult. And so to be able to help provide for his children and give them a more stable life, uh, he moved the entire family um, to be raised and live among other relatives. So Mm -hmm. Henrietta ended up with her maternal grandfather. Um, And they lived in a two-story log cabin um, on this this patch of land that they owned. But what I thought was fascinating and also just heartbreaking was that this log cabin was once once the slave quarters on the plantation that had been owned by Henrietta's white great great grandfather and great uncle we Um, are covering a lot of u.s history like this is amazing that (laughs) it's like hitting all the major points we've got roanoke we've got like slavery we've got well we're gonna have science like already this is the the whole gambit (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And when, so when I read that fact, I was like, oh, geez, that like really highlights that slavery was not that long ago because it was her great, great grandfather um, had owned that plantation. And it's like, that is only a couple generations away from her. And just, yeah, how, imagine trying to, um, yeah, you can imagine growing up there and being so close to the history of your relatives. So I'm sure it definitely had an impact. Yeah. Uh, on her and her family. Um, so from an early age, uh, to help support the family, she worked as a tobacco farmer. Uh, and so that involved anything from tending to the gardens, helping feed and tend to the animals, uh, and generally just helping support her family. And so this actually took quite a toll on her. She ended up leaving school to continue to help support the family financially and um, uh, physically with all of the workload. So when she was 14 years old, she gave birth to her very first child. Uh, and a couple years what? later, her and her... Yeah, 14 years old. So very young. Oh, my God. Um, remember, this would have been in 1934. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, not uncommon for women to have children before... Before that, like, multiple children before the age of 20. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hmm. So she was 14. A couple of years later, her and then her now husband moved from Virginia to Maryland. Um, and her husband uh, was called David, or uh, they would nickname him Day. And so they moved so he could work at a steelworks to try provide a more stable um, future for them and their, and their future children. Um, so things were looking up. So this she would have been about 16, 17 she had a toddler. She was married. They had just moved moved away to, like, a new job in a new hometown where things were looking up. Um, however, this was smack bang pretty much when World War II was just starting out. And uh, Day was called and enlisted um, to fight in World War II. Oh, my God. She's, so she's, like, 16 mm-hmm. years old with two kids? 
I think at this time she only had one child. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay. Um, but she did have multiple children, so there's possible that she might have even had a newborn by the time that he was taken um, oh my God, to, to be enlisted in the war. Mm-hmm. I know. So you moved away from your family, super stressful already because you don't have your support network, and your husband has just been yanked off to the war. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure incredibly stressful so i wrote stressful time all round um but it did yeah. it did get better he did come back from the war thankfully and they had more children and they were able to over the next decade um work and bought their very first house uh and you know they were having a fairly good life with their children they now had a home um and she was now entering her early 30s however uh, I've written that fate, <laughs> fate is a cruel, is a cruel bitch. Um, oh, no. and Henrietta was actually really, really unwell for the last few years of her life. Um, and the last pregnant she had, so her final child she had called Joseph, she was incredibly unwell and I'll, I'll get to it a little bit later, but basically she was unwell even before conceiving Joseph, um, with pains in her lower abdomen and once she had found out that she was pregnant, uh, all of her friends, family, and herself had, had chopped it down. Those pains must have just been um, the, the early signs of pregnancy. Right, that makes sense. Which we, we now, mm-hmm. yeah. So only four months after giving birth to Joseph, um, the pain continued and was getting very severe. Uh, and so she presented at John Hopkins Hospital really, really unwell. Uh, and... I think it's super important to note here that at the time, so where she was living uh, around uh, around Baltimore, I believe it was, um, John Hopkins University Hospital was the only one in the entire city limits that would treat black patients um, and do it either for free or for subsidized prices. Wow. Um, yes. Many of the other hospitals just would not treat black people um, or they were incredibly expensive. Oh my god, that's so fucked. I feel like that's an as- yeah, that's it's really an aspect mm-hmm. of like history, or I guess particularly the history of racism that like I actually didn't know until this moment. Like you know, obviously like I knew people have been like racist and, and what have you, but like I didn't realize that that was like one of the ways it manifested was just straight up we won't treat black patients. That's incredibly mm-hmm. awful. Yeah. And we'll find out a little bit later is that even when they did treat black patients, they would often use them or their bodily samples for scientific research without their consent mm. as well. Um, so it was yeah. it was really like, yes, we'll treat you, but there was kind of like this underlying... There's a catch. Um, yeah, exactly. So it wasn't just, we're going to treat you because you're a human and you deserve medical treatment. Um it was it they could they could get something out of it which is just evil mm-hmm. um but yeah so she mm-hmm. rocks she rocks up at john hopkins and she's in incredible amounts of pain and she tries to describe this pain to the doctor as feeling like a knot in her womb um and i can imagine it would have been so for any any of our listeners who have experienced like cramps from from having uh, like a uterus and ovaries doing their things um, it can feel kind of bizarre depending on what type of cramps you get. And I think her trying to describe it as like a knot was a really good way of trying to describe that just it was feeling 
not right something was not right and incredibly tight and not not normal Mm. um so i think she did a good job of trying to describe her pain Mm -hmm. um and so she this this is the same knot that she had previously told her cousins about just before she had fallen pregnant um and everyone had just assumed that when she started presenting as pregnant that the the knot was just associated with that pregnancy that it was it was part of the, the pregnancy process um, and it wasn't anything to do externally in her body um, mm-hmm. however at John Hopkins they began to took biopsies um, of her cervix and they found a, a very large mass on her cervix um, so she was diagnosed with cancer uh, and she was treated but unfortunately um, at that stage late stage in the cancer and with the treatment that was available it wasn't enough and her illness continued to just worsen and worsen. Um, so during this time, mm-hmm. she had presented back at the hospital, um, and when they when she had presented back, they had taken more samples of her cervix um, that were taken without her permission or even her knowledge. Oh, so shit. there was no consent or permission to say yeah. yes, you can take take these samples. So the first one. Apparently, there was verbal consent that, you know, to help diagnose you, we need to take a sample. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, these subsequent ones, there was, no, there was no written verbal permission or understanding or consent. Um, and it was these samples that were taken that were given to cancer research, uh, George Oat Gray. Um, and we'll get back to this in mm-hmm. a bit, but just, just remember that these samples have been taken, given to George, George in his lab, and basically... Uh, were given to him to try experiment on to see um, if they can try to determine what type of cells were growing. Okay. Because this is back in the early days where cancer was less well understood um, and they kind of understood that there were different types of cancers, uh, but they were still trying to determine exactly what cancer was what and how they progressed through the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so Henrietta, she kept getting worse and worse and she sadly passed away on October, uh, in October in 1951 and she was just 31 years old. So she was a very young woman. Poor girl. Yeah. Yeah. She was buried in an unmarked grave in the family cemetery, um, on that original plantation that her great, great grandfather had owned. Um, and it, to this day, her exact burial, burial location is unknown, but people think it's near her mother's grave. Um, and her mother's grave was one of the only graves at the time to be marked with a tombstone. Was that on purpose? Why was it unmarked? I think for cost reasons, because hmm. tombstones are really expensive. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of her family's graves were unmarked at the time. Okay. So we're going to jump back to George in his lab. So he's gotten these cells that were taken without her permission. um, And he starts experimenting with them before her death. Um, So she was still alive. They could have asked for consent at this stage with what research they were doing. Um, So he began to culture them up. And this is typical in cell research. You try to to try to culture them to see if you can propagate the, the the cells so can they reproduce on their own do they need extra energy sources um just to try get an understanding of what type of cells they they are and he was super duper surprised when all of a sudden these cells were uh 
like growing super robustly. So they were doubling their culture size every 24 hours. Oh my God. And this was completely unlike, yeah, completely unlike any mm. other human tissue, tissue species and, and specimens that he'd ever worked with before. Had he worked with other cancer cells? Like this was not typical of cancer cells? Exactly, yeah. So he'd worked extensively with lots of other cancer cells. Um, and this was just a very special type. And it's the, the type that we call the immortal cell. Um, but yeah, so this was the first one out of all of the others that he'd worked with. Um, the first human cells in general, not just cancer, but human cells in general, um, to prove yeah. successful in vitro, so successful in growing basically in a lab condition. Okay. And so this was understandably complete breakthrough in scientific research. And after Henrietta's death and when they started to understand more about how important these cells were, um, he freely donated these cells um, and tools he had developed to analyze these cells to other labs because he understood how important they could be for future medical research. So I think it's important to note he didn't directly profit off these cells. This sounds like foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to just to get an idea of how important these cells are, uh, in just the last 50 years of their use, they have generated over 60,000 peer-reviewed scientific articles. Whoa! Mm, yeah. Isn't that insane? Yeah, that's a lot of articles. It's a lot, and it, they're exponentially growing now. So I think it's something like 3,000 a month now have some type of relation to using healer cells in the research. Wow. And uh, to put them in perspective of what they've helped us in humanity do, they were vital in the research of the polio vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, they mm. have been researched extensively to try to understand cancer cells. They were used in the early research of AIDS and AIDS diagnosis and treatment. And of course, in genetics, they have been used. And even the wildest thing, they have been sent to space. Oh my uh, God. In mm -hmm. space. Yeah. So in space, in microgravity, cells can either thrive or they cannot thrive when you take gravity away from them. And these are the type of cells that absolutely thrive. So it means that their cultures are able to grow much more rapidly, robustly in size, um, which is super interesting because so these are a type of cancer cell, obviously, and a type of immortal cell, so they don't die out easily. Mm -hmm. Wow. And some of the, the possible repercussions is that if humans go on long-term space flights, we will be exposed to more radiation. More radiation means that we can have more um, mutations in our cells, which can lead to cancer. And the, the problem is that if cancer cells are able to more robustly reproduce and, and survive in space, it could mean that humans are set for not a very well time in very distant space travel because our bodies would very much struggle to try beat to beat mutation and cancer cells. So I thought that was fascinating mm. that yeah. it's gone from this young lady born in 1930 to all of a sudden her cells have even been sent to space. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's like, it's so uh, difficult to place where my excitement or my disappointment are because it's like on one hand, that is incredible that her legacy <laughs> is what it is. But on the other hand, it's like, this was all done without consent. So it's like, should the baseline mm -hmm. be anger or should the baseline be a pre like i think this is hard i feel the same way 
Yeah. It is really hard mm. because they've been so, so, so important in medical research. Um, but as you said, super important that neither Henrietta or her family ever consented to this type of use of herself. Yeah. Um, and actually, this is wild. They didn't realise that they were even her cells until about 20 years later. So here yeah. is here's the next part of the roller coaster. So back then, obviously, there was no written verbal consent from family or Henrietta. And back then, there was no legal or ethical requirements in place around informed consent of patient treatment. So I think this is really important to note that they didn't legally or ethically have to, but they should have morally done it. Yes, but, right. But this is this is what has yeah. helped shape law in in our current in our current twenty first century lives. So, in fact, back in the day, any material that was obtained through the treatment um, within a hospital. I don't know whether this was just um, Maryland state law, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was across many states. So, any materials that were obtained through treatment. Um, the hospital was was considered the property owner, um, and it was either the hospital okay. or the physical physician if they were a, a private position physician or the institution that it came from. So it's wild that the default was that hmm. they owned the material. Oh my god! Crazy, yeah. You you could literally chop off someone's limb at a hospital, and that was yours to keep. Yeah, I own this now. <laughs> I own this now. Exactly. And so they were called healer cells because back in the day, it was customary to name it after the first two letters of the patient's first name and last name. So that's why we've got Henrietta Lacks and Healer. Um, however, the names mm-hmm. weren't necessarily propagated through with the research. Oh, so you mean that some people didn't, didn't know? No, lots of people oh, okay. didn't know that they were her cells. Uh, so it wasn't until 20 years later um, that people began to suspect who was the rightful owner of these cells. And it wasn't because the hospital said, you know, these cells that have been breakthrough in, you know, polio eradication came from this young lady. It was a leak. Someone had leaked the information to the public via, via written media to suggest that Henrietta was the rightful owner of these cells. And at the time, people, researchers denied it from John Hopkins. However, this was conclusively confirmed using DNA in just the last 10 and 20 years through different DNA methods. Did people deny it up to 10 and 20 years ago? No, I believe I believe in the 70s and 80s they agreed that they were most likely from Henrietta uh, Lacks. Yeah. Yeah, so as you can probably imagine, there's you know, quite a lot of controversy around this, especially since um, for a long while after Henrietta's death, um, her family struggled financially because, you know, they had a few children, their mother had died, um, they weren't yeah. able to seek medical care openly or or um, really at all where they were living because, again, if you were black, you just couldn't be treated or you could only be treated at exorbitantly expensive prices. Um, and it's not like they got any special treatment from Johns Hopkins. Um, so they were treated like anyone else. Um, and a lot of this was because of, you know, racist and discriminatory medical practices. Um, mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins Hospital, where Lax received her treatment uh, and had her tissue harvesters, was 
the only hospital in the Baltimore area um, that offered treatment to black patients and they could receive um, free care. Um, however, the patients receiving free care uh, had to do so in a segregated section of the hospital. And this is what I touched on before. They often become part of research studies without their knowledge. Mm. So they were just yeah. being used. Yeah, that's what makes me land on mm -hmm. the side of like, this is absolutely awful, especially because they were like poor and suffering. And so it's like, you know, they could have at least received financial compensation for how incredibly influential and like seminal this yeah and know, so they had no access to her patient files after she died and again no say and who received the healer cells or what type of research they would be used for as well mm. uh, but as you said this is super super important and it did um, influence the establishment of many different sets of laws around um, informed medical consent um, and especially research ethics. So if you're going to do research, where do you get your cells from, why, and who is consented? So just at the end of mm -hmm. last year, so in the end of 2021, Henrietta Lacks' estate sued to get past and future payments for the alleged unauthorized and widely known sale of the healer cells by Thermo Fisher Scientific. So as I said at the beginning, the original researcher, George, had freely distributed them. However, they had become used as a monopoly by many different um, distribution centers for medical research um, because they could breed them and create them in bulk and then sell them to labs. And one of them, one of the worst ones was um, Thermo Fisher. Uh, and so they're suing them and they've hired an attorney to try, an attorney, an attorney, sorry, They've hired an attorney to try seek <laughs> compensation for upwards of a hundred different pharmaceutical companies um, that have not only used but completely profited off the use and the sale of healer cells. Um, so that that's where the story ends. But I hope that maybe we can have an update in the future to say if they've won that court case because absolutely I think they deserve to be compensated. Yeah, and I, yeah. I guess I also feel like you know amazing that she has this kind of legacy but she died so young and it's like if you asked me mm -hmm. would you rather like live a long healthy life or like die young and leave behind a legacy like fuck it I'd rather live like a long life and be totally anonymous you know <laughs> so I do kind of me feel too. bad like I feel like when we consider oh look at this amazing legacy she left behind look how much she helped science it's like yeah, but she fucking died at 32. Like, I don't, you know, like, I wouldn't want that to be me. Yeah. 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 I agree with you that it's an amazing legacy, but it's also, it's like, was completely unknown to her family that, that she had yeah. this legacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember in the book reading that, that they had no idea. They didn't even, like, understand what it meant that they had HeLa cells. Yes. That, I mean, because to, to, to anyone, that's like, what does that actually mean? Like, is there... I, I remember one one of her family members saying that like does that mean they have like pieces of her somewhere in a lab mm. like what does that mean exactly and and it's just really unfortunate that this had to happen but like I see the science part of it being amazing that we were able to get so many discoveries from it but I like it it just hits you right in the stomach that's like this shouldn't shouldn't yeah. be you know like it shouldn't have you know it just just get consent about this and it's just it just blows my mind i'm so conflicted on this subject i agree it is so simple yeah, to just get consent like just to do it the right way i agree because they had gotten consent for her first 
the first time they took cells. So why not for the additional time? They don't understand. Very much. And yeah. it, I think what's really yeah, sad is that all of her children, her surviving children, because some of them died quite young, um, they would have been, you know, middle-aged adults by the time that they had any idea that HeLa cells belonged to their mother and any of yeah. the impact mm-hmm. that they've caused. Um, and even then, it wasn't until uh, most of her children would have been incredibly old and it would have been on to the next next generation after her children who would have provided DNA to help match back to, to HeLa cells. So it's crazy that it took that long to be able to confirm something that really should have just been in writing. Yeah. <laughs> it has a dark side. Science really has a dark side. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it really does. Totally. Especially um, medical science. Yeah. Bad, bad. Yeah, it's not great. No. Um, and even, I think it's, I forget where in India, um, but there was a certain location in India, another, same thing, medical school, had all of these cadavers um, that they had been bought, you know, quotation, air quotation marks, legally, um, but they hadn't. They'd basically been stolen or bought for, for pennies from um, from families living in poverty um, without the informed consent of what their loved ones would be used for. And this is all this is all in the 20th century. Crazy. So it's happened, it, yeah, all over the world. This type of thing happens. Yeah. But that that's me, and I'm now ready to learn about why we why we pie people in the face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's real. Like I know we say this pretty much every episode, but it's amazing that we end up in such different places from the same starting location. It's like yours went like yeah. so deep and historic and touching, and it's like. <laughs> Let's get as surface level <laughs> stupid as possible. Then over to mine, over to the Lindsay corner. Oh my god, I cannot wait to hear oh. how you got to pie face. Like, yeah. what? How did you do that from the moon? Um, Jesus, how did I do that? I I'm just clicking really fast through. I okay. Somehow I got into like some science talking about um, salt and iodine, um, which became seafood. Uh, Pretty typical. I was like hanging out in seafood for a little bit. The Clean Water Act popped up. And um, somehow from there I got into this weird Latin phrase and from Latin phrase went into like ethanol fuel mixtures. Um, Still not really... But from ethanol fuel mixtures, I got to Ford Model T's. And from Ford Model T's, I clicked on a uh, actor that I like who will actually come up. Because this is now right around where I got into pie in the face. Um, I clicked on Stan Laurel. I don't know if you've ever heard of Laurel and Hardy. Yes. No. I feel like I have, but maybe. You've heard of them, Sarah? <laughs> they. I think it's, is it Babes in Toyland that they did? Well, they they were back from like the golden age of cinema, weren't they? Yeah, they do. Um, they are like before. They are like the the, uh, the comedy pair that kind of came before Abbott and Costello. Yeah. Oh, okay. Laurel and Hardy. Uh, 
is is kind of where I got to, and and from there ended up uh, actually on this man named Fred Carno, who was also going to come up, and these two kind of got me to pieing. So, I it, I took an oddly scientific route to get there, um, and just very quickly ended up here. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing perfect. it is perfect yeah unlike you guys i have the discipline to leave the science <laughs> i want to be more like you it takes discipline to end up in pie in the face but that's where we are that's where we are um but I guess it kind of like I alluded to with Laurel and Hardy, uh, the tradition of pieing in the face or the gag in which you pie somebody in the face uh, is over 100 years old. And I guess maybe that makes sense because right now we're in like the 2020s. So wow. 1920s ish. Yeah. Um, if anybody yeah. is unfamiliar or you are listening from an area of the world where this is not a staple of comedy, um, a pie in the face is quite literally that you take some kind of cream pie, so there's no crust on top, and you throw it in somebody's face. And for whatever reason, which is why I was so interested in this article, this is a staple of particularly American comedy, but also British comedy. And I, I do think that it's kind of become a common enough image that it shows up in many cultures. I don't want to say all cultures, but I think a lot, at least in the maybe Western culture, it's extremely common. <laughs> yeah. um, hopefully it's a familiar enough uh, trope, I guess. So I wanted to know, particularly when I was reading this, my, my central fascination was, why did people find this so funny? <laughs> because I don't think it's <laughs> funny. <laughs> I was kind of hoping to have some kind of explanation. <laughs> or, you know why did this stick like of all things why is this something where it's like and now there's a pie in the face <laughs> oh you got it oh, oh. <laughs> you're hoping the article gives you some epiphany where you're like oh, oh and i yeah, get it i'm like oh that's so did it give, and it didn't give you that epiphany um I actually, in the way that, you know, like when you look at a painting and you're like, I don't know why that's art. And then you like learn yeah. some art yeah. history and you're like, oh, now I get it. Like that. Yeah, now like, I see it. That's how I appreciate it. It's not now. It's not like I look at it now and I'm like, oh, that's so funny. It's more like, oh, no, I appreciate that sort of um, purpose, I guess. So actually, that's probably a great way to, to really introduce it. Um People who actually are, I don't want to say experts in humor, but kind of historically people who um, started what we refer to as like American comedy or American humor now uh, kind of saw this as the perfect way of walking the tightrope between harmlessness and humiliation. Oh. So nobody actually really gets hurt, but your pride is definitely wounded. You've literally got pie on your face. Um, it's not like you trip over a bit of sidewalk and you recover. It's like you are now like filthy with pie. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, want to do this with pie that does not have a crust over the top. And the reason I say this is because there is a dark side. Non-consensual pieing is punishable by law. Ooh. Yeah. Whoa. I had no idea. I, I had no idea either. Because it's like you're 
you're trying to assault them, basically. Yes. So, um, I will go into a little bit of the dark side of pieing. Uh, that is a section oh, that yeah. I made sure to take notes. Yeah. But, um, getting into kind of the history, um, pieing had first began in plays that were like on stage. So before really the era of, uh, movies or silent films, we first had pieing in the face in uh, comedy sketches. And the first film that it appeared in was in 1909, a silent film called Mr. Flip. And this man Ooh. was, according to the wiki article, Mr. Flip himself was taking liberties with a woman. Oh, oh naughty Mr. Flip. Yep. So Mr. Flip got a pie in the face for taking liberties with a woman. <laughs> <laughs> you find he it funny. Deserves, he deserves that. <laughs> for his efforts, he got a pie in the face. <laughs> so um, I had I had said that this is the first time it appeared in film, but like it had appeared on stage a little bit before that. And this guy, Fred Carno, who I said was part of my sort of wiki path, uh, he was a British man who during the 1890s was limited by law. So apparently in the 1890s, when it came to writing comedy or I guess stage performances in general, there was a, a heavy dose of censorship applied to um, the dialogue. In, in the 1890s. Oh, okay. So he decided to instead rely on uh, bodily humor or situational humor that is a little bit more um, acted out so that he could circumvent the whole like, uh, I'm really limited in what I can say, so I'm just going to make people laugh by the way that they act, right? So he's the one who really started popularizing a pie in the face. That makes sense. Wow. Trying to get around, get around the red tape. Wow. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it kind of begins as a little bit of an act of rebellion. And what I thought was so cool about Fred Carno, um, like I said, he's this British guy. He was the sort of teacher, uh, I guess as much as you really can be a teacher of comedy. Uh, his pupil was Charlie Chaplin. Oh, okay. Wow. That's that's really cool. That is so cool. And Charlie Chaplin's little protege was Stan Laurel. Oh, it's all coming together. Wow, one big comedy family. I was about to say, yeah, like a little comedy family tree. Um, so these guys, the three of them, Fred Carno, Charlie Chaplin, and Stan Laurel, all kind of were the beginning of popularizing the sort of pie-in-the-face gag. Um, but there were many, many other people who studied under Fred Carno, but I didn't recognize their names, so I'm not mentioning them <laughs> because this is about what's interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> This tradition made its way uh, over to America rather quickly. In around 1913, somebody by the name of Max Sennett, who was dubbed the king of comedy, said, as a personal rule, a mother never gets hit with a custard pie. Mothers-in-law, yes, but mothers, never. <laughs> Mother-in-laws, yes. Mothers, no. Wow, I love the boundaries. No. That is, that is the line. <laughs> this is what's funny. This is what's not funny. Now we've got it. 1913, we've got the line in the sand. You do not pie a mother, but you do pie a mother-in-law. That is right. But that's crazy because a mother-in-law is still a mother. I know. Because she obviously had, she birthed the the person that you're, you're, in, you're married to for, to be a mother-in-law. I definitely, I definitely agree with you, Sarah, but this is... The like, I'm just, it's like a Venn diagram <laughs> that, like, doesn't quite 
what yeah it's it's like if this was a logic statement your code would crash like <laughs> yes. uh, so this is really like turn of the century i guess is where this gag sort of comes from that's where this humor um comes about and i just i thought these were really interesting little fun facts about it so in 1927 there was a laurel and hardy film called the battle of the century and I believe this holds some kind of world record. There was a fight with 3,000 pies. Holy crap. Wow. That's a lot of pie. It's, it not only is it a lot of pie, because it was honestly hard for me to imagine like how many pies is 3,000 pies. Um, I tried to look up modern day uh, sort of like a Guinness Book of World Records for, for pie throwing contests or pie in the face, whatever. Um, and a lot of the there were a lot of like small town newspapers claiming that they broke it but they were all in like the 2000s so as far as i'm concerned this is one of the largest pie fights i have seen on the internet um set in 1927 i'm sure we could beat that now (laughs) you really want to do that (laughs) i mean if we get a big enough audience size hell yeah (laughs) we could do a go ask alice pie contest (laughs) 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 what also kills me is that like back then they definitely didn't have the industrial level of like food production that we have now so i'm just imagining like all of these like you know little old ladies baking individual pies for this like 3,000 pie fight the poor things they would have put their heart and soul into it and they were used to hit someone in the face i mean maybe not i'm sure <laughs> I think you're sensationalizing that a little bit. I, I love you. I love your compassion, Sarah. You're you're very kind. <laughs> um, but I did find this is another uh, interesting fun fact of of massive massive scale pie uh in 1965 there was a film called the great race and this was the largest pie fight in cinematic history it was a two hundred thousand dollar scene that used four thousand pies and a large cake and my favorite part is it took five days to shoot wow (laughs) can you imagine a five day long pie fight that's many hours of pie i want to see it imagine waking up on like day three and you're like oh Oh, (laughs) not again more pie oh god it would feel like groundhog day (laughs) you're like i still have two more days of this shit i'm sick I guess nowadays, whenever we see a pie in the face gag executed, it's kind of, it's more about a call out to like, you know, an earlier time. It has a nostalgia or like a vintage feel to it in a way that does, it doesn't feel modern, I think is what I'm trying to say. You know, when you see, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you see a pie in the face, you're like. I, this is funny because it is old timey funny. <laughs> this is not. A, there are no <laughs> memes right now that are about buying in the face. <laughs> Part of what piqued my interest was the contemporary pie throwing or pieing in the face and, and the ways that it's used. So, modern day 
the most common use i would say this isn't this isn't as per wiki this is as per lindsay um a common use of tying in the face <laughs> is actually a form of political rebellion that people use against politicians and the wealthy yeah hmm. okay yeah i can see that so there is a whole sort of subsection about um political activism with pieing so it really began or it took off, I guess, as a means of expressing yourself in the 70s. And I think that this really comes back to what I was saying before about being a balance between harmlessness and humiliation. Because it's kind of like, mm-hmm. what, are you really going to sue me over a pie in the face? Spoiler alert, like, yes, you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is, you know, it's a little bit less than a baseball bat to the face. You know, like, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But still humiliating. It's yeah okay that's yeah. Um, but it it all started in in a very good place as far as I'm concerned in the 70s activists who were pro gay rights and um, pro legalization of marijuana anti war anti capitalism they all took to pieing in the streets. Uh, so anarchists for example targeted the rich famous and pompous Bill Gates in 1998 on a trip to Brussels. And I thought this was hilariously a full circle for Lindsay because there, this event in 1998 inspired a uh, video game that was available online where it's basically whack-a-mole, but instead of whacking Bill Gates, or I'm sorry, instead of whacking a mole, you whack Bill Gates with a pie. And I don't remember what episode <laughs> it was. <laughs> I did talk about the history of whack-a-mole. Which we also talked about in the last episode. I think whack-a-mole just is... <laughs> omnipresent yeah it exists everywhere in life it really does but there is a a activist group called the uh, they are anonymous uh biotic sorry biotic baking brigade and they pie conservative pundits like this woman named ann coulter who i didn't know before but uh she sucks yeah yep <laughs> yes. yeah I'm, she's an absolute right right crazy biatch oh fuck her doesn't that's, she have her own? That's the best way to. Doesn't yeah. she have her own talk show now as well? Sure. She was super duper pro Trumpy, <gasps> pro manga. <laughs> Wait, manga? You mean maga? Maga. Oh, well, maga. I think we call it manga <laughs> yeah. in Australia. Maga. <laughs> manga is 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 like. Oh, that's a Japanese cartoon. Like, uh, oh my yes, god. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you just you just insulted half of I'm our audience. I'm so sorry. No, mag. What do you call it? Maga. It Ma- sounds like make America yeah. great again. Yeah, whatever the stupid hats were. Oh my yeah. god. Are they still are? They exist. Oh god. Yeah, I just googled her latest. Oh, she's a nightmare. She's got books. Oh, I can't. Yeah. Anyway, did she get a pie in the face? She was pied in the face by the Biotic Baking Brigade and later by Al-Pida. <laughs> Al-Pida. Oh my gosh. Um, also the leader of the Westboro Baptist Church named Fred Phelps was also pied in the face by the Biotic Baking Brigade. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my God. You know what? I'm joining. Al-Pida. <laughs> Another group called the Ant, and sorry, Antartists. Sorry, I want to. I wanted to get that right. So Tart is in there on purpose. 
Oh, oh, oh yeah. They are a Canadian satirical political group. So I guess a fake group of politicians or making fun of politicians in the late 90s and early 2K targeted specifically political and cultural figures in need of public embarrassment, which I loved. And their <laughs> leader, or maybe not leader, but a prominent member goes by the name of Pope Tart. <laughs> <laughs> oh my um, god, that's amazing. <laughs> they specifically targeted the Canadian Prime Minister and Premier of Alberta for defending uh, basically large companies' rights to pollute natural resources. So they, to me, the pieing yeah. guys are, fi- are pieing the good fight, pieing the good pie. <laughs> They're pieing the good pie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I support their pie behavior. I, it's good. Yes, I heavily endorse it. I I will get into the convictions just because I think. Um, oh dear. I I think it's funny that there are such heavy consequences for pieing. Like, give me a fucking break. I mean, this is yeah. the reality of politics, right? So, the uh, Alberta Premier, who I was, do you say Premier or Premier? Premier. Oh, I don't. I don't know Canadian politics. Like the the premier, we call it a a premier. Um, like the leader of the state here. Premier. Like if you break up your state, so it's. Can you say it like really slowly? Hmm. Premier, but that's very Australian. Premier. Premier. I don't know if I'm saying it with an Australian accent or if I'm saying it correctly. <laughs> premier. I think it, I I get what you mean. Oh no! Yeah, I, I get it. Oh no! I'm gonna have to go to the apology corner again for all of these. Fuck! <laughs> 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 you guys, if anybody if anybody lives with governments that have this role in them, I'm I'm really sorry. But also, if it makes you feel any better, it took me most of my childhood life to understand how to say governor correctly so i you know maybe it all evens out Aww. somewhere so the pie when i was just talking about the alberta premier premier i would say um of of canada <laughs> um the the alberta premier <laughs> of canada it i was just saying was was uh targeted by antarctists in, in 2007 so one of them are i guess missed and it hit a security official instead. And that person got 30 days in prison. So not too bad. Oof. Wow. Okay. That's still a lot. That is a lot for, for a rogue pie. Another uh, Alberta premier, a different one, in 2003, uh, was hit by a pie. I, I think Canadians just love their pie throwing. Uh, but this also <laughs> received 30 days in prison. And this specific, I almost said diagnosis sentence jesus <laughs> whoa the legal <laughs> okay. diagnosis well. was assault charged for assault in 2010 PETA uh threw pies to protest canadian seal hunting and it was considered an act of terrorism what <laughs> seal hunting should be considered wow. an act of terrorism i'm with you amen Rupert Murdoch in 2011 was, I, I don't remember this and I really have no excuse, but there was apparently um, 
a phone hacking scandal that had many people very upset. Uh, so he, Rupert Murdoch was pied in the face and the person who pied him also received four weeks in prison. So it sounds like if you're about to pie somebody of high profile in the face, prepare for about four weeks or 30 days of prison time in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, wow. This is I saved the best for last, though. This is the most over-the-top consequences. A Spanish politician, Yolanda Barcina, was pied by the deputy mayor of Aruazu and uh, two others who were protesting a high-speed rail line. Well, one person missed, two people hit. The person who missed got a year in prison. Oh. Whoa. The two who did not miss got two years in prison. Wow. Whoa. Jeez. That's a long time in prison. Yolanda claimed bodily harm that was suffered because of, quote, the hardness of a French meringue pie. (laughs) 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 Oh, I can kind of understand if it wasn't a cream pie. Do you all know what a French meringue pie looks like? <laughs> no. Is it rock hard? Let me Google it. No. French a French meringue pie is basically pie. all cream. Oh, my God. It, is, it looks so soft. It's, <laughs> well, she claimed bodily if harm. If anything, she got, a, she got free dessert. <laughs> Well, there you have it. You should think very carefully about whether or not you want to pie a politician in the face. But um, almost always, I will support you. And that's really wow. the the long and short history of pieing. That is amazing. I really enjoyed that topic. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you guys so much for like being so enthusiastic <laughs> and like so into it. Like it's so much more fun when I can make you guys laugh. So just like thank you for like really diving in with me. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> so yeah, um, I ended up on the topic of antimicrobial resistance or AMR for short. So um, as I always do, Define I the always topic. Do. I will define my topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a it's a thing. We love it. <laughs> so AMR is a process in which microbes evolve mechanisms to protect themselves from the antimicrobials. So it's very simple. It's you know microbes being resistant to microbial antimicrobials. That's it. What's a so, microbe? Um, and then this might be a dumb question. <laughs> But is this like yes? Because with the COVID days, we've talked a lot about like antimicrobial, like hand washers and like even like stainless steel plates on doors and stuff. Is that the same thing, or is this a different? Yes. Yeah. Well, this is this is um, general. Kind of a result of that a little bit because oh. um, this also I touch on antibiotic resistance mostly oh. because that's that's a really big one. I see. I um, see. So. So the antibiotic resistance is a subset of AMR um, that specifically applies to bacteria that become resistant to antibiotics. But, you know, uh, microbes could be anything from fungi to viruses to protozoa to bacteria. So it kind of covers, it's all of those things, but I think antibiotic resistance is kind of the the big one that we're hitting on, that that I wanted to hit on. The poster child Um, for it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wonderful. Um, So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's great. it's great, it's super cool, but it's also super horrible, so I, I love this topic. Anyway. <laughs> Put that on a shirt. It's super horrible. I love it. 
I love it. I'm sorry, so, Drew. You infections, go, you infections go due to AMR <laughs> cause millions of deaths. You might want to start that sentence again. I'm Did sorry. Let him say the oh bad sentence. <laughs> I'm sorry. The bad sentence is incoming. Yeah, start again. So infections due to AMR cause millions of deaths each year because these types of infections are more difficult to actually treat. There so we go. So that's, that's kind of the big problem is that they, you know, um, they require higher doses of antimicrobial drugs uh, or alternative medications that can be more toxic to the person that's being treated. So it's, a, it's actually a really big issue. And the World Health Organization has called this a, a global crisis. So it's, it's pretty big. Um, and, uh, of course, when it comes to these you know, higher dosages or alternative medications, these approaches tend to be more expensive as well, which to us also has to be a consideration because, you know, if, if you're getting, if you're footing the bill, it's kind of a problem. Um, mm. you know, it's, it's a big problem. I love that. That's how we make government yeah. care. It's not that millions of people are dying. It's, it's costing us money. Yeah. Well, let's, <laughs> we'll get to that. We will definitely get to that. Um, so on top of microbes that are resistant to certain antimicrobial medications, there are also microbes that are in, resistant to multiple different kinds, and these are called MDRs, or multidrug-resistant microbes. Oh. And they're super terrifying, because those are the ones that, when you get it, nothing can really treat you, because oh, you know, they can't use a cocktail. You're, you're kind of fucked, is, is mm. the, the long and short of it, uh, which, is, which is kind of a problem. Mm. But, you know, that's... Uh, and then there are also bacteria that are considered ex, um, extensively drug-resistant, or XDRs, and total drug-resistant, or TDRs. And these are sometimes called superbugs uh, that can be extremely dangerous when it comes to infections because, you know, we can't really treat these, which is, which is a huge problem. Yeah. So when it comes to resistances, how does this actually arise? So resistances in bacteria can arise naturally through genetic mutation. Oh, um, my Or God. by one... Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Who's keeping time? How long has Drew been talking? Say it. <laughs> no, I'm literally not saying it. It, re- it arises from genetic mutation. That's it. Genetic uh, diversity. It, 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 it. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. I mean, it, you wanted it kind to. Of is you wanted thing. to say it. Didn't no, you? I didn't. I didn't. There's literally no genetic diversity written in this. Oh, I'm so proud. Drew's like, <laughs> stop bullying me. <laughs> Yeah, but you. Stop but here's it. the thing, Drew. You meant it. It doesn't matter if it's no, it. you no, meant no. it. <laughs> I didn't mean it. I, did, I didn't even think about that. I just thought of genetic mutation, just Maybe because I'm genetic not even is written in there. About genetic diversity right now. I'm not. <laughs> Mom, I'm not thinking about genetic diversity. I'm not even thinking about it right now. I'm not even thinking about it. <laughs> not even thinking. About it. Well, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> well, me too. <laughs> whose fault is that? Probably mine. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, genetic diversity. So, <laughs> resistance can also arise, which is a super cool mechanism where one species of bacteria acquires resistance and then passes it to another species of bacteria, which is, as I said, it's super cool. And there's a, quite a few mechanisms for this to happen, but basically the, the bacterial genome is known as highly plastic or, or has high plasticity, um, meaning it is able to adapt very quickly to, by changing its DNA and gene expression. And you know, in humans, we don't have a very high plasticity because we don't really want to change too much. 
Um, we want to be more of what we are. We don't want to have mutations all the time. We don't want to have all this, you know, different gene expression. We don't, well, kind of, but um, we don't really want to change too much. But bacteria, it's, it's a, you know, very advantageous for it to be able to change super often. So that's, it's, it's a very high plasticity. So that's, that's just kind of cool about bacteria. I love bacteria. Bacteria is super cool. Anyway, <laughs> but, it's, but it's extremely bad for us because trying to treat bacterial infections just more difficult because of this. And then um, we also have the problem where resistance to antibiotics can also appear, you know, as spontaneously, as I said, through these mutations, but it's also um, extended use of antibiotics seems to encourage selective mutations, uh, which can render antibiotics ineffective. So basically, we're putting on selective pressure. This is just simple natural selection at its finest. Um, we're, uh, we're, we're applying a, a pressure to these bacteria, and because of that, they're responding by, you know, once one bacteria becomes resistant to antibiotics and is able to survive, it doesn't have to compete with any other bacteria, and then boom, now you've got a huge colony of, of antibiotic-resistant bacteria that's, you know, just taking over and being able to flourish. Yeah. So that's, mm -hmm. that's a problem. But, um, so that's, that's where um, we really get into the the problem with antibiotic misuse, um, which, you know, if you were to misuse antibiotics, then that can lead to antibiotic resistance being much more prevalent because, you know, taking anti, you should only be taking antibiotics when they're prescribed. You shouldn't be taking, you know, antibiotics for, for random things that you think, you know, might, might help. Oh, why don't I just take an antibiotic? Cause I, I feel chest pain or yeah. something, you know, you shouldn't be doing that because that's just, you know, propagating this, this antibiotic resistance. And um, it's also suggested to do narrow spectrum antibiotics versus broad spectrum antibiotics, where you're, you know, you're more effectively and accurately targeting specific organisms. It's less likely to cause resistance as well as side effects. So that's just a good thing that we should be doing. So can we and, pause? Um, I have a question. Yes. So when you talk about like a targeted anti, sorry, yeah, targeted antibiotic, um, yes. I, my impression of antibiotics was always that this is like a giant blanket sort of, not like a cure-all, but it's kind of like, like it, it's widespread enough in the number of things that it can address that, yes. like, I'm, I'm very shocked. This is the first time I'm hearing of like a targeted antibiotic. Is this yes. new? Yes. No, no. So antibiotics have... Anti I keep saying antibiotics. Antibiotics, sorry. It's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> so antibiotics um, actually have very many different mechanisms that they work by. Uh, some target cell walls, some target um, the actual DNA, some target all kinds of different things. So what you're doing is you're actually targeting something that you know specifically about the organism and saying, I want to attack that thing that I know about this organism. And so I'm going to use a specific antibiotic to, to attack that specific thing that I know about that organism. And that's the, the very narrow spectrum antibiotics is saying, you know, I'm going to attack the cell wall because I know that this cell wall has a specific, you know, uh, like molecular makeup that I can target. So that's what the, the narrow spectrum would be versus broad spectrum being, I'm just going to target a bunch of different things and it's going to, you know, it's going to work, but you know, I'm going to flood with antibiotics that aren't really going to be too useful mm. against this specific, you know, organism. So that's, that's the big difference. It's kind of like shooting, shooting everything and just hoping that something sticks. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
it's uh, it's a shotgun approach versus like a sniper rifle approach. I hate using gun metaphors, but that's kind of what it is. Yeah, well, so so I I think I think that that makes sense. But is the is the strategy then to diversify specific approaches so that your body doesn't develop um, particular? It's not that your body's immune, but it's like to avoid the situation where the antibiotics no longer affect the bad things in your body um, is the strategy then to just use or diversify your specific antibiotics to prevent yes. that situation. Okay. Well, it's, it's kind of that we tend to, cause there are, there are definitely a lot of um, different organisms out there that are um, out there that are antibiotic resistant. We have things that are effective against them. When you get hit with antibiotic resistant, bacteria in your system where you just use different antibiotics on them that are effective but if those stop being effective then that's the problem mm, where you know you're using a different cocktail this time but it could be a more expensive cocktail that's you know much harder to create but mm-hmm. um that's kind of the problem is if those stop being effective then you're royally screwed right it's like an arms race exactly that's exactly what it is it's an arm race it's a biological arms race yeah Ooh. okay that's so metal yeah, that's that's why I fucking love bacteria, but they're they're <laughs> horrible, but they're great. I love them. Um, so so for people who take these medications at home, you know, education and proper use is essential. That's like the key point is that you know for everyday usage of antibiotics, we have to have some kind of education behind it. We have to not just like take them for no reason. It's you know we really really need to to educate people and we need to have them take it properly. So that's that's kind of the 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 mesh to take home here is that, you know, we really need that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, rising drug resistance is caused by the use of antimic- antimicrobials in humans and other animals and spread of resistance strains between the two of them. So, you know, humans and animals were really connected. I mean, we eat them, we live with them, all kinds of things. So when you have that kind of connection, uh, bacteria spreads between the two of us and if one if animals were to get uh antibiotic resistant uh, animals that we use were to get antibiotic resistant bacteria in them then that could be passed on to us and then now we have an antibiotic resistant infection which is just Mm. a a huge problem well i'm going to talk about some some of the bacteria that i've worked with that was Mm. antibiotic resistant um and it's it's really cool uh but it's also a little terrifying when you're holding a sample in your hand and you know it's antibiotic resistant and you know that if it got in you you'd be royally screwed does your brain (laughs) do the thing where it's like eat it yeah yeah i i lick it like (laughs) your brain just like intrusive thoughts just yeah yeah (laughs) oh my god you're so right just rub it all over your body like rub it yeah (laughs) Do you have to wear like special PPE when you're working with it? Um, not particularly. I I kind of just wore a, uh, we wore a face mask and gloves and then and and goggles and that was about it. And there's like it wasn't it wasn't like a hazmat suit. It was just like all right, like this is just what I normally wear. So wow. um, it's it's it was something else. Anyway, <laughs> it was really something else. That um, is so cool. So. So antimicrobial resistance uh, is increasing globally due to increased prescription and dispersion of uh, antibiotic drugs uh, in developing countries especially. This is really bad. Um, So that's 
you know, not that I'm blaming them, but it's that's just a, a source of the a lot of the antibiotic resistant. Do you think is, it's just is, a, developing countries a lack of education with the healthcare providers that are providing the prescriptions and not not understanding what the the larger ramifications like ramifications could be if they overprescribe? It's, it's that I would say a little bit, but more to the point, which we'll get to later. It's water. Water's the huge problem. Oh, Ooh. okay. So, so water and not having proper sanitation, not having proper, um, you know, infrastructure for water, that's a big, big problem. Even in the U.S., it's estimated that like 2.8 million people become infected with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. And Holy it, crap. this is like per year. That's huge. So there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of people. And, and it said, what was it? 35,000 people die in the U.S. just from these antibiotic resistant bacteria, which is, which is a huge problem. And. And one of the funny things that I found rather funny about the article was it was um, estimated that $55 billion in increased health cost and lost productivity was costed to the U.S. by these antibiotic-resistant antibiotic bacteria. And I found that very funny, like the, the loss of productivity was just yeah. so funny to me. It was just mm. like, oh, man, we can't work. That's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, Not right. loss of life. <laughs> Loss of life. Who gives a shit about that? But in increased productivity. You couldn't have got it. Oh. So it, it, I just found that very funny. It's it's dystopian. But <laughs> yeah, dystopian's the right word. I like that for this. Uh, but seriously, the World Health Organization has estimated that 350 million deaths could be caused by AMR by the year 2050 if we don't control it in some way. So this is just another ticking time bomb that we have going on for us. So, you know, that's that's just great, isn't it? Just another ticking time bomb. But, I mean, from Yay. a numbers perspective, like, it just kind of, if you took, like, a really far out approach and looked at just, like, how many humans we have on this planet and the diversity yeah. of, you know, the fact that we can carry so many different diseases or, you know, those diseases yeah. have so many, yeah, opportunities to mutate. It's just, like... The, the opportunities that this bacteria has are just so vast that it's yeah. just kind of like, of course that's going to happen. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the problem is you're, you're dealing with, with it's, as you said, it's very apt to say it's a new, it's like a, a biological arms race that you're dealing with that, you know, people don't, people don't realize how big of a arms race is going on, but mm -hmm. you know, we're not actively developing more antibiotics because they're, you know, they don't, they're not very cost effective, um, you know, because once you use them, you're good. So it's not something that that people that that companies invest too much in. And um, even COVID-19, the pandemic has been a real big issue with it because uh, antimicrobial research, like the antimicrobial resistant research, has gone down quite a bit because scientists were focusing on the current problem of COVID and not the future problem of resistance. So that was just like a. a rather interesting thing that I saw that was just like, oh, well, COVID's even screwing that up. So something not <laughs> to know? not to add to the like, you know, paranoia, but something that I kind of wondered in the back of my mind was with COVID, so many more people are now using hand sanitizer and sanitizing surfaces. And so I did from, again, a pure numbers perspective, wonder if we in COVID prevention were breeding stronger bacteria. Yeah, that's that's kind of the problem where, you know, when it says, you know, kills 99% of bacteria, well, that, that you know, that 1% of bacteria that's alive is now becoming a superbug that's just been able to infect that entire area that you just, you know, bleached or not bleached, right. but 
but like, you know, used hand sanitizer on or, or whatever. Right, they use sanitizer. You know, sanitizing. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a serious problem that we need to address. And I think, so, so not so much doom and gloom anymore. I'm going to talk about how we're going to actually address this thing because this yeah. is like a big Hell thing. Yeah. Let's fix um, it. How are we going to fix it? That's, that's this next part. Um, so the most effective thing that we can do to stop this crisis are, can be rather simple in nature. Uh, the first is just simply monitoring the duration of antibiotic treatment, uh, which can just be based on the infection uh, or other health problems that the person may have. So it's just simply looking at what you have with the antibiotics and saying, you know, how long should this person have these? Should they have, like, how, how much treatment should they get? You know, it's, it's, it's just a very basic, like, keep them so that they have enough antibiotics, but not too much that they have left over. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's just stop treatment when it's no longer necessary and don't overprescribe. So that's, that's just like the first baseline, very easy way we could do this. But then the second idea is actually monitoring and mapping, um, which is much more involved process. Basically, this idea involves tracking antibiotic resistance and monitoring the progress of resistance throughout the world. And so you'd just be able to get a much more accurate idea of what's happening in the world just by this, you know, just being able to assess where the drug resistance is happening and, and kind of getting an idea of, of like, how do, we, how do we deal with this more um, is just like the monitoring mapping. I want to mm -hmm. be hopeful and believe that COVID has furthered or you know advanced this infrastructure so that this could be more possible yeah or more plausible I, I would say so yeah i could I see that being definitely a thing so um you know covid really made us aware of of being in a pandemic made you aware of how how hygienic you were and how mm. you know how much you took care of things that you didn't normally really consider that much like washing your hands but this is so that's that's all good um for helping with resistance is, you know, having proper sanitation, having proper hygiene. That's all, that's all good for this. Um, so that's, I think is a, is, you know, COVID kind of hurt with the, the scientists being scientists. I always say that it feels so funny as like, I'm a scientist too, um, <laughs> but you know, I'm a doctor too. No, <laughs> doctor, doctor. Anyway, um, getting way off the rails here. Um, it's unlike you. So, <laughs> is it kind of actually yeah <laughs> compared to Lindsay and I <laughs> uh. <laughs> so the third idea of limiting drug resistance is simply limiting the use of antibiotics so that's just like you know another baseline thing that we can do um, so this means using antibiotics when they're absolutely necessary. So it's not just like, oh, I, you know, I have a cold or something and give them antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's not what we want to be doing. We want to be doing it. Like I have this specific infection, give me antibiotics to help me, you know, prevent this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this, would, this means people would not be prescribed antibiotics when they're, you know, when, when they wouldn't help, um, and basically, because a lot of people believe that antibiotics basically cure everything, and that's, that's not true. They, yeah. They're very specifically targeted at one specific thing that they do, and they're very good at that, but, you know, they don't cure everything. So we can't, can't look at them as a panacea and just hand them out. Because, um, you know, viruses, viruses don't get affected by antibiotics, so, you know, that's, that's, you shouldn't be taking antibiotics for, uh, for COVID. So mm -hmm. that's, right. you know. That's just baseline there. And then 
uh, sort of like at the hospital level, this means giving out the right antibiotics at the right dose for the right duration. And, excuse me, this is of course, you know, much more difficult than I just made it seem. Like, you know, the right dose, right? Di so, <laughs> and yeah, I just, just simply know I the answers. Yeah, just know the answer. So I, I realize I've just kind of like basically told hospitals to just get better at, at you know, get good at, at, at prescribing. Hospitaling. But <laughs> just be better. Just be better. But, you know, we have we have to prescribe antibiotics responsibly. We can't just be giving them out. Um, and then at the farming level, which I found very interesting, I didn't even think about this at the farming level. Um, uh, it is it's established that the use of antibiotics in the animal industry can give rise to AMRs in bacteria found in animal food, or food animals, I can say. Mm. And this is, of course, is another reason not to eat animals, but I don't really want to get into that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was literally thinking about how many um, antibiotics and hormones we give chickens. Yeah, me yeah, too. Yeah, that's, that's a big one. That's a big one. And, you know, we, I, I didn't want to get into not eating animals, but it, it's better for the environment. It's better for antibiotics. It's better for a lot of things. So I, I'm such a hypocrite, but God, I just like burgers. God dang it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be such a sad little britches the next time you eat chicken. You're going to sit down and be like, oh, man. Oh, no. <laughs> but another thing that I found very interesting about antibiotics in, in animals is that the, the antibiotics they use are, are deemed not clinically relevant. And so those are the ones that get used on animals, but it just feels like that's just what right. What does that mean? So it just, it just means that they're, they're not clinically useful. They're not, you know, for, they for couldn't humans. be used in a hospital. Oh, yeah, they would, okay. yeah, exactly. They wouldn't be used in a hospital for humans. They're just kind of, they're antibiotics, yes, but, you know, they're not clinically useful. Yeah. Um, but they can still easily produce antibiotic resistance within animals, and then that gets passed down the food chain to humans. So this, of course, has far-reaching impacts on human health. Mm. And so that's, I just found... Just because it doesn't affect human, um, like, bacteria, bacteria that's harmful to humans doesn't mean that it's, like, safe. <clears throat> because then yeah, you could have the same Yeah, it's not a good thing to have. Right, you could, yeah. have, you could have these resistant bacteria that then develop in chickens, for example, and then those bacteria get passed on to humans, even though it had nothing to do with the with really the antibiotics that you were using it's just yeah. the fact yes. that this bacteria. bacteria was now developed yep exactly that's that's the whole problem that we're running into with with animals being you know heavily dosed with antibiotics is that we're we're building these you know that are in our food we're building up you know bacteria that could be very harmful to us that we just don't know about or not not that we don't know about it but we just like we're not thinking about it so that's yeah. just i i didn't really i didn't even think about it so you know, I'm the pinnacle of science. What am I saying? At the level of general practitioners, um, one of the strategies for reducing resistance is just to better inform patients about the use of antibiotics and just know that these drugs are not panaceas and that you shouldn't be taking them for like a respiratory tract infection or something like that. You know, it, it's just for this very specific purpose. And then once again, we get to the idea of giving the right drug at the right dose at the right amount of time. But, you know, that's an ideal situation. But, you know, these general practitioners can also 
before prescribing antibiotics. They can take cultures of, of the infection before the treatment, and that reduces the misuse of antibiotics because then you can use a very targeted antibiotic on it versus using a general antibiotic. So that's just a, another way that, that we can reduce this resistance out there. And then at the individual level, um, people who didn't just tackle resistance by taking the antibiotics when they're prescribed by their doctor, completing the full prescription, and then never sharing antibiotics and just never using leftover prescriptions of antibiotics mm. for treating other illnesses. We should only use them for, for what we need them for. You know, <laughs> you shouldn't like, oh, I feel sick. I better pop some antibiotics. Like, yes. that's, that doesn't help you. <laughs> My family yeah. has a tradition of doing that. Oh, no, of, like, having the script and be no. like, oh, you're sick. Here we go. Here's an old old script. No, we'll just for it. some reason, we just stockpile antibiotics and just <laughs> take them when sick. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Send me to the fucking no. apology corner for antibiotics. <laughs> I think my family did that, too, when we were younger. Like, if you had a prescription, like, with a repeat on it, if you were getting sick or you had, like, like a chest infection or whatever, you'd just go get your, your antibiotics filled and start taking them. <laughs> but this is back this is back before they started educating about don't do that. No, it makes sense. Like I you know, I feel sick, this stuff is meant to make me not feel sick, I'm gonna take it. Like yeah. you know, it just makes sense. Especially back in the early two thousands where it was like heavily, you know, for almost anything you could get an antibiotic um, prescription. Crazy. Yeah. Really, you could. Yeah. Crazy. Well, it's a it's a serious issue and, and now now I think we're much more cognizant of it, so you know, that's that's it's good. It, we're learning. Yeah. But you know, hopefully we didn't learn before it's too late. Yeah. This is that, my slap on the slap. wrist. Yeah. Oh, I already gave you one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Drew. I'll be better. <laughs> this is super this is super informative. This makes me feel good for not eating yeah. not eating meat. Yeah. <laughs> An extra <Yeah>. bonus. <laughs> Good for the planet. And there you go. Good for my, my microbes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good for your microbes. <laughs> Another super interesting topic, but we'll get we'll get into that. I'll probably get into that later. It's super cool. Your your back like your bacterial fauna is super cool. Yeah. Anyway, so um so finally uh, water sanitation and hygiene need to be included in this list. Okay, um, yes. Because unsafe drinking Yes, so unsafe drinking water is the cause of many gastrointestinal diseases, uh -huh. which greatly in increase the use of antibiotics. Oh. So to treat these gastrointestinal diseases, you have to use antibiotics. The problem with that is, as you start to increase the use of antibiotics, the amount of persistent infection diseases increases as well. So then you have to use further antibiotics to treat those, those persistent infections, and then that increases the amount of persistent infections. So now you have this deadly cycle that just diminishes the eff efficacy of antibiotics oh, just I because see. improper infrastructure for water. Yeah. So that's, that's the big thing is, is this is really bad. That makes but, sense now why in developing, developing yeah. uh, places we see like this increased... Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The increased amount of 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 these resistant bacteria, yeah. and I think I'm going to soapbox for a second, but I think as developed countries, we need to assist developing countries to establish good water infrastructure so that antibiotics don't need to be used in such high quantities. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons we should do that. But yeah, you know, totally. to me, that's a, a a very convincing reason because you know, at the end of the day, it's not just going to be their problem; it's going to be our problem soon enough. I was going to say, like, you know. If anything, COVID has taught us that we're all extremely connected. Yeah. 
And like, you know, it's, it's sad that a lot of, I would say like large scale political movements, like don't really take, like take action unless it's like a personal issue, you know, like it, people yeah. don't care until it affects them personally, which yeah. I mean, considering all of the things that are going on in the world, like also kind of get it because it's like, I'm, I can only pay attention to the fire that's closest to my face. Um, <laughs> but I do, I do think it is really important to like recognize or to take away from, from the pandemic that we're in right now that like, you know, we are all extremely connected and all of our policies, like, you know, the, there's only mutual benefit to, to gain when, when, we help other other people i I feel i yeah halfway through i realized how stupid that was to say like duh everybody knows that (laughs) no No, it has to be said i think it has to be said sometimes it really has to be said because i feel like people don't even look at that don't even think about that at all so it does have to be said yeah everybody use resist bot and write to your politicians about water infrastructure there you go i'm like laughing but i'm serious (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> no that's, that's useful um so anyway i think antibiotics are super cool and i want them to be you know effective in the future and there is so much more to this wiki article than i could cover i mean there is just so much more to this so if you really want an interesting read about like serious antimicrobial resistance it's great it's a great article so you know just go if you if you're interested go for it or this would be a good time to introduce the Discord. Ooh. I'm into it. Hell Go yeah. ahead, Drew. Hook, line, and sync. We're creating Discords <laughs> so that you can talk to me because you can already talk to the other two, but you can't talk to me that well. So now you can talk to me <laughs> through our Discord. It's going to be great. And we'll be able to show you different articles, and it's going to be super cool. Okay, so yeah, we'll that's, all that's be Discord. there. <laughs> we'll all be no, there. No, they won't. They won't be there. They won't be there. Don't worry. We'll all be there, but just like <laughs> just like you were saying, Drew, like there's so much stuff you didn't get to talk about, and I'm sure that there are, like other than the three of us, tons of science and bio nerds out there. So to continue the conversation, might as well hop on over to the Discord. Yeah, and we can talk, and we can you know little little tip tap type to each other. <laughs> um, the link to that Discord will be on our Twitter, so um, I'll pin it for a while. I guess. Um, yeah. Until it's just yeah. famous. So I wanted to finish off with a quick side note because um, I actually worked with some antibiotic resistant bacteria when I was in college and it was super cool because the, the professor handed us um, specifically P. originosa or Pseudomonas originosa and S. aureus. I forgot the S stands for. Staphylococcus aureus. That's yeah, the one. Yeah, Staphylococcus. Um, and she told us that these are antibiotic resistant so don't mess up but also just like handed us these cultures and was just like it was just like snow nonchalant about it i was like whoa <laughs> like, this this feels so weird because she like i remember she just like handed them to us and was just like all right don't mess up but they're they're like you know don't don't get these on you <laughs> we're like okay thanks aye aye captain away we go aye aye captain away you go and we tested them with different cocktails to see if we could actually get them to, you know, respond to antibiotics. And we were able to, but, you know, some some things, you know, they just didn't respond and just grew fine. So it was just really cool to see that in, like, in person. But, um, yeah, that's that was my little aside about, about uh, deadly bacteria. I'm so interested 
between so Sarah and Drew about each other's topics before each of you presented, like percentage wise, how much did you know about the other one's topic? I would say I knew probably about 50% of what Sarah talked about because I read the book on it. Wow. Okay. Wow. I only knew a little bit of Drew's topic. I remember vaguely learning about it, um, but it, it's awesome. It's fascinating. I had no idea that there were so many factors that went into creating, um, you know, these super, super, super microbes that, that are resistant. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. So cool, but so terrifying at the same time. I love it. Yeah. Biology is so cool. <laughs> biology is awesome. Like, I think one of my favorite facts in the universe is that about 50% of our biological mass in our body is cells that are not human cells. Like, it's bacteria yeah. and other things that are vital Wow. Yeah, if we didn't have them, we would be dead because, like, our gut flora and things like that absolutely vital to us and all of the different bacteria we have on our skin as well um but yeah if we didn't have them we would be not not having a good time we contain multitudes we do we We are we ourselves are our own little ecosystem isn't that sweet (laughs) i think that's awesome yeah you're just (laughs) traveling around you are a universe to some of these some of these microbes Oh, I know. My gut is <laughs> perfect way to end it. <laughs> perfect ending. Pee pee poo poo universe. Pee pee poo poo universe. That's oh, exactly what I was going to say. Bonk. <laughs> Drew. <laughs> Bonk. Drew, one of us has to be normal at all times. You can't do that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's possible for me. <laughs> Be normal. <laughs> oh my god! You sound like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Drew. Sorry, sorry, mom. I love you. Uh, we love you just the way you are, Drew. Oh, thank you. Do not change. All right, my little universes. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Though dark was extra giggly. So I hope that you got your absolute fill of existential dread, um, bewilderment, excitement, and just pure curiosity. Come hang out with us on Discord. Like I said, we would love to meet you and hang out. We're scheming all kinds of devious channels to open and uh, conversations to be had. Hang without, oh my God, hang with us. Hang out with, with us. us. Hang out go. with us. <laughs> <laughs> Hang out with us on Twitter. Go ask Alice Pod. Um, TikTok is now Sarah. Oh yes. So I'm gonna merge the Go Ask Alice TikTok with my own personal TikTok. So you can follow me at Sarah Web Science on TikTok. And not only will you learn a lot of facts from this show, but you'll learn a lot of other random fun facts as well. Yeah. She can't help herself. <laughs> <laughs> she has a problem. I have a problem. Uh, you can also come hang out with us on Instagram at Go Ask Alice Podcast. And you can answer the question of the week. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. We love you so much and keep being weird. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye. Run the house. Round the house. Round the house. Round the house. Singing around the house. Round the house. Round the house. Round the house.
house. I'm singing in the kitchen, roundhouse. Now we're in the bedroom, roundhouse. Round I'm in the bathroom, roundhouse. Roundhouse. <laughs> <laughs> now we're in the living room, roundhouse. Round <laughs>